Take your Bibles and turn to Psalm 50, please. Psalm 50. We've been working our way through some of the Psalms, and we're going to take a look at the second half of Psalm 50 this morning. We're going to jump right into it. Before we read it, let's go once again to the Lord in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we commit ourselves to you, and we ask that as we spend time in your word, you would guide us by your Holy Spirit. We ask that you would give us hearts that are sensitive to you, that where conviction is necessary, Lord, we would have humble hearts. And where encouragement, Lord, is necessary, we would have receptive hearts. And we thank you that you can minister to each one by your Spirit, through your words. So we surrender and ask that you would do that and give us a will to abide by the principles within your word and the empowerment to do so. For we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Psalm 50. The Mighty One, God the Lord has spoken and called the earth, from the rising of the sun to its going down. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God will shine forth. Our God shall come and shall not keep silent. A fire shall devour before him, and it shall be very tempestuous all around him. He shall call the heavens from above and to the earth, that he may judge his people. Gather my saints together to me, those who have made a covenant with me by sacrifice. Let the heavens declare his righteousness, for God himself is judge. Hear, O my people, and I will speak, O Israel, and I will testify against you. I am God, your God. I will not rebuke you for your sacrifices or your burnt offerings, which are continually before me. I will not take a bull from your house, nor goats out of your folds. For every beast of the forest is mine, and the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the mountains and the wild beasts of the field are mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine and all its fullness. Will I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer to God thanksgiving and pay your vows to the Most High. Call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. But to the wicked God says, What right have you to declare my statutes or take my covenant in your mouth? seeing you hate instruction and cast my words behind you. When you saw a thief, you consented with him and have been a partaker with adulterers. You give your mouth to evil and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. These things you have done and I kept silent. You thought that I was altogether like you, but I will rebuke you and set them in order before your eyes. Now consider this, you who forget God, lest I tear you to pieces and there be none to deliver. Whoever offers praise glorifies me, and to him who orders his conduct aright, I will show the salvation of God. May God bless to us the reading of his word this morning. Two weeks ago we looked at this portion, or a portion of this psalm, and I want to complete that today. Not that Psalm 50 is so pleasant that it would be a delight to continue in it, but I think the topic is of such significance that we should not just pass over it. The topic here in Psalm 50 is the judgment of God. As I've titled these two messages, God remains the righteous judge. I see there being four parts in this psalm. In verse 1 to 6, God is coming in judgment. In verse 7 to 13, God will judge empty ritualism. And in verse 16 to 22, God will judge blatant hypocrisy. But then, and thankfully, in verse 14, 15, and 23, God calls us now to return 
wholeheartedly to him. We spent our time in the last message looking at point one, two, and part of point four. And this week I would like to review point one and then focus on point three and four. Point one is that God is coming in judgment. In verse one to six, we have here the presentation of the sovereign righteous judge gathering together his people from the ends of the earth, east to west, for judgment. And while this is on one hand absolutely terrifying, it is on the other hand comforting. It is terrifying because it is the unveiling of God in all of his glory, and we tremble before that glory, for the glory of God is overwhelming and is awesome. God here in this passage at the very beginning is referred to as the Mighty One, God the Lord, that is El Elohim Jehovah, the Almighty One, the Supreme One, the Eternal Self-Existent One. It's coming in judgment. There is no one greater. There is no greater authority. There is no one like our God existing from eternity past to eternity future as creator and sustainer of all things and here as judge of all. No wonder it is terrifying. But this glorious God also refers to his chosen people as just that. Specifically speaking here to Israelites or the nation of Israel and in the New Testament speaking to the church. As his own people, God, he refers to them as my people, and he refers as himself as your God. Which is amazing that even in this passage, which is about the judgment of God against sin, he still is acknowledging that those who come to him in faith are his children, his people, and he is our God. He is our God. So there is comfort and encouragement here as well. And as I said in the last message, This is not some powerful, aloof judge who is just sentencing a random criminal. This is actually our loving Heavenly Father disciplining or holding to account His own child. So there is incredible comfort there. So I want you to be encouraged in that even as we look at a difficult passage and heavy judgment upon sin. Remember that by grace through faith you are in Christ. And so when God the Father looks at you, he sees his own son, Jesus Christ. That doesn't mean we will no longer give account for what we do with what he's given to us, but that's something that we need to keep at the back of our mind at all times. In Jesus Christ, we have been made righteous. We also noted in the last sermon that although this is an Old Testament psalm, the judgment that is spoken here is not unique to Israel. The church, believers today in this age of grace, will also stand before God and will give account of what we have done with what God has given to us. Now, that will not be a determination of our eternal standing, as in heaven or hell. That will already be determined based on faith in Jesus Christ, or the absence of that faith. But for the genuine born-again child of God, there will still come a day of accounting, referred to in Romans chapter 14, verse 10, and in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, as the judgment seat of Christ. There our works will be judged, and we will either be rewarded or we will suffer loss depending on the eternality of our works, whether they were things of eternal value or merely selfish temporal things. We see that in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse, or sorry, chapter 3, where it speaks about our works being judged, some of them being burnt up, some of them lasting, depending on the eternal value of them. 
Those things which are burnt up are those where we have taken God's hand of blessing and his, his care for us and we have used it for our selfish ends, for temporal things. But the things that last are where we have, in response to God's blessing, used God's blessing for things that are eternally worthwhile. We will give account. And I believe that the scene that is set before us here in Psalm 50, in God's judgment upon his chosen people, the nation Israel, and the same passages in the New Testament which speak about the judgment seat of Christ, will actually look quite similar. God will be seen in his glory as the righteous, perfect judge of all. And he will be the one who testifies against and for us, and he knows all things perfectly well, So our every action and our every motive, he is all-knowing, and we will stand before him and give account. And as it says here in verse 21, which we'll come to later, but it says, God will set them, that is our actions and our motives, in order before your eyes. That is terrifying and wonderful at the same time. God is still and always will be the judge of all. Every person ever born will one day stand before him and give account. That day draws ever nearer. So I would challenge you with this question of what are we doing with what God has blessed us with. We will be held accountable. Now, having said that God is coming in judgment, what does Psalm 50 reveal about what God is coming in judgment against or what he judges so harshly here? What was it that Israel was being warned about the judgment of God in regards to? Well, firstly, they were being warned about their empty ritualism, going through the motions in verse 7 to the end of verse 13. The people of Israel had been consistently bringing their offerings to God, and God says, that's not bad, I'm glad that you're bringing them, but he says, basically, your hearts are far from me. And as important as it was to fulfill the requirements of the law and sacrifice, God has always been more concerned with the heart of the matter than the external expression of it. God is concerned with the heart of the matter. The command to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and to love your neighbor as yourself is not a distinct New Testament command, but is a summarization of all of the Old Testament laws. So external ritualism without heart is a complete failure to meet the requirement of the law. Ritualism is unsatisfactory to God, and and not only unsatisfactory to God, but it is hated, because it has the appearance of righteousness, but has nothing genuine or real about it. It is a pretense, and so it is doubly a fraud. So that's the first thing, and we looked at that two weeks ago. That's the first thing that God is coming in judgment against, empty ritualism. The second area of judgment, and the main point of the remainder of this passage is that God is coming and God will judge blatant hypocrisy. It seems that the empty ritualism of the first half of this passage was not necessarily deliberate. And ritualism often isn't. It's just a habit that we fall into, forgetting the heart of the matter. We become so familiar with something. It becomes so natural to us that we get caught in a comfortable rut a rut of repetition, until eventually we can go through the motions without a second thought or a single emotion. That is bad enough. And God will judge empty ritualism. But even worse than empty ritualism, according to this passage, is this blatant hypocrisy. That is to do what we know to be wrong, 
but to cover it with a veneer of respectability, to cover it up. Now, in verse 16, we have the beginning of God's declared judgment on these hypocrites. And some have thought that this is speaking of those outside of God's chosen people, Israel, or in our context, that God is speaking to those outside of the church because he calls them here wicked. Verse 16, But to the wicked God says, What right have you to declare my statutes or take my covenants in your mouth, seeing you hate instruction and cast my words behind you? If they are wicked, then they must therefore be outside of the family of God. But I would hesitate to say that categorically. These were people within the nation of Israel. They knew the law and the prophets. They knew the covenants of God. But verse 22 says they had forgotten God. That would imply that there was a knowledge of God. And perhaps there is room for a distinction there. Maybe they knew of God without actually knowing God. That distinction could be made of the church universal today, that there are many within the church who know of God but do not know God. But without spending a lot of time evaluating their spiritual standing, because it doesn't really break it down here, and we don't have that, I don't have that ability to break down the freedom or break down the those within the universal church who know of God versus know God personally, lest I can't look into their lives and say that's the case, we'll just speak about what God is judging this group in regards to. And I do think that it applies to those within the church as well, as it applied to the nation of Israel. God is judging hypocrisy. That is the wickedness that they had committed. And it is a wickedness that is still being committed in or out of the church, more so in, because if you're outside of the church, why would you be hypocritical about it? But to those who are professing to be part of the church and yet living in sin, these are the ones that God is bringing judgment against here. As we examine that sin, I would ask that we search our own hearts and ask God to convict us of our empty ritualism or of our hypocrisy, And then to cleanse us from it and to enable us to no longer walk in it. These individuals declared God's statutes and they spoke of the covenants of God. That's that's a great thing. That's not a bad thing. That's a glorious thing. They were defenders of the word of God. We see that within the church today as well. And they taught and they spoke highly of the word of God. They believed that it had reached out to mankind and they believed the promises that God had made. That is the, the covenants that God had made with man. The problem is that while God's statutes and God's covenants were on their lips, their feet were pursuing sin, and their hands were busy in sin. Look individually here at the list of these sins that they committed, and we will take them one at a time. It starts off with these people who God says are wicked, who know the law and know the covenants, but he says they hated instruction or reproof. That's prevalent today, isn't it? I find myself there at times, don't I? Don't you? Where reproof or instruction comes, especially the idea of reproof, of correcting. And what is our instinctual, our automatic response? It's not just to get our back up, but often it's even to go beyond that and to attack the one who is bringing instruction. Because it's it's easier to go on the defensive rather than to admit to conviction in our own lives. These people here, they refused to be directed 
or corrected even by God himself. That is the epitome of arrogance. And yet, so prevalent today as well. This is an area we struggle with. We have our minds filled with truth, and often we think that we have a corner on it. And our go-to response when we are corrected, especially, is to defend ourselves and what we think. This is where the reminder from Romans chapter 12 should come into play, not to think of ourselves more highly than we ought to think, but to think with sober judgment. This is how we ought to think as believers. We must never become so high in our esteem of ourselves that we are unteachable or above correction. We must be teachable. We must be willing to be corrected. These people, these wicked people spoken of here, it says, they also cast God's word behind them. They failed to accept God's word as the final authority in all matters of life and conduct. Rather, they held it loosely. They held it with contempt. We see that today as well. Many claim to be followers of Jesus Christ, but instead of asking themselves, what does the word of God say in any given scenario, they ask what is convenient. Or they ask, and this is very prevalent, what will make me feel the best? Because that becomes the standard of what is right versus what is wrong, rather than the absolute standard of the word of God. What is convenient? What will make me feel good? What will be the easiest? What will I get the least amount of flack from the world from in regards to this? Rather than that question, what does the Word of God say? And we need to be people of the Word who recognize it as the revelation of God to man and His divine instruction for life and godliness. Do not be one like the wicked in Psalm 50 who cast aside the Word of God. Now for them, having hated instruction and having held the Word of God with contempt, the downward spiral is is well on its way. From there, they consented with thieves, perhaps not actually stealing anything themselves, but giving it a nod of assent. They took part with adulterers, once again, perhaps not actually committing sexual immorality themselves, but accepting sexual immorality as commonplace and reasonable, as acceptable. These two sins here are once again an issue of the heart. And he's saying, no longer live in hypocrisy. Go back to the word of God. What does the Word of God say? Submit to the revelation of God. Submit to the instruction of God. But when you refuse to submit to the instruction of God, and you refuse to submit to the Word of God, then it is a given that you will begin to accept and agree with things that otherwise you would not, things that you know to be contrary to the person of God as revealed within the Word of God. The list goes on. From being these accessories to sin, They now enter into sin. First, they're just accessories to the crime or accomplices in it, but now they actually begin to sin openly with their mouth, with what they say. Their mouths speak evil, and their tongues spoke deceit. There seems to be some continuity here. When you cover up a sin, or even aid in a sin, or accept a sin as legitimate and so say nothing against it, you quickly turn to lies and to deceit to cover that sin. And we know this reality that sin leads to sin, which leads to sin. We all know that to be true because we've all at some point told one small white lie that we thought was insignificant and it was just merely a half-truth. And then you find yourself very quickly thereafter 
telling another lie to cover the half-truth so that you won't get caught in the half-truth. And after you tell that first bold lie, then it continues in that. Sin begets sin, and on and on it goes. It was so bad here in Israel that some of these people were, they were, it says they were basically defaming their fellow Israelites, and they were even slandering their own flesh and blood. This, they were speaking evil of others within the nation, right down to speaking evil, slandering their brother or their sister. Do we see this in the church? Where we have accepted sin, where we have said that sin is, is all right, is permissible, and then we've begun to cover it with words from our mouths. We've begun to justify it. Maybe in ourselves, we begin to cover our own sins. And in the process, rather than submit in humility to somebody else, we have brought them down to our level with the power of what we say. It is always easier. It's unfortunately so. It's easier to discredit somebody else than it is to take onus for our own sin. We need to be very, very careful about that. This is the hypocrisy that he is warning the people of Israel about and I believe is, is speaking to us as well. Sin is destructive. Sin is incredibly destructive. We forget that all too often. Sin is a rot that eats away at mankind. It hurts, it destroys, it kills everything that we see or experience in this world that we would say is not good, that is evil. It comes from the root of sin at some point. Whether it's a natural disaster that's in the world because of the curse of sin that the world is under, or whether it is murder and rape and disease and all of these things, they flow out of sin. Sin begets sin, which begets destruction. Sin is never good. And it's not just bad because God has arbitrarily said that sin is bad. It is evil because it brings death. It is evil because it brings destruction, because it has a consequence. Sin is not just bad because God has declared it to be so, but because it is actually bad for us. It has a negative effect. Sin is never without a negative consequence. Eventually, at some point, it bears fruit. It is destructive. This portion of Israelites who had done this evil, they did so thinking that the consequences of this sin will never catch up with us. But sin always bears its fruit at one time or another, eventually. They also sinned thinking that they could get away with it. Why? Because, well, God hadn't intervened. He hadn't come in judgment right away, so he wasn't going to come in judgment. They took, actually, God's long-suffering with sin as a sign that God himself accepted sin. Do we see that in the church today, in the world today? Absolutely we do. Where we have become so used to God's long-suffering that we can justify our own sin. But sin has consequences. They had sinned and they thought basically God winked at that sin. God was all right with that sin because he didn't do anything about it. They sinned and God had done nothing, so God must be all right with sin. Mankind has downplayed the destructive nature of sin and we've also downplayed the holiness of God. We live practically very often as though God doesn't hate sin, but he does, and he will still judge righteously. He will still mete out justice. He will still punish sin. 
Now, for you today, if you are in Jesus Christ, and I pray that you are, we realize that the judgment against our sin has been placed on Jesus Christ. He has already felt the gavel fall at the cross. Our punishment has been meted out to him. However, keep in mind, we will still give account, not in eternal separation from God in hell, which is the eternal outcome for those who choose to deny Christ, but we will still give account and will suffer loss or gain reward as a result of what we have done with what God has given to us. The day when God will rebuke sinners is still coming. And as it shows here, the evil that they have committed, and I think even not so much that massive evil, but the waste that we have committed, the misuse that we have committed, we will give account. And it will be laid out, it says, before their eyes. Verse 21 is, is quite the verse. These things you have done, speaking about the sin, especially their, it talks about them hating instruction, casting God's word behind them, consenting with thief, consenting with adulterers, uh, giving evil from their mouth. All of these things, it says, these things you have done and I kept silent. You thought that I was altogether like you. But I will rebuke you and set them in order before your eyes. What a warning. I don't know what that'll look like. I imagine it'll be like a replay of their lives. If you've ever seen that track, This Is Your Life, it shows up like a big video screen and it replays all the events of your life, right? I don't know if it's going to be like that. But regardless of the method in which it is done, there will be an accounting given of sin. And what was once hid in that hypocritical veneer will be painful. Yeah, painfully, I was going to say plainly, but painfully obvious. And it will be undeniable. It will be set in order before your eyes. As we discussed after the first portion there in regards to empty ritualism, it's the same with blatant hypocrisy. All will stand before God. But as we also discussed after talking about empty, empty ritualism, there is still hope. There is hope. Whether you find yourself in the camp of that empty ritualist who's just going through the motions and your heart is far from God, or whether you find yourself in the camp of that blatant hypocrite, and that's between you and God. God is still calling to you today. He is calling to us today. And He is still offering opportunity for us to repent and to be fully restored. We see that in verse 14, 15, and 23. God now calls us to wholeheartedly return to Him. God is calling you today, myself today, to return wholeheartedly to Him. These are amazing verses. In verse 14 and 15, we see that there is still opportunity for that one caught in empty ritualism to return to the Lord. God calls that individual, and if that individual is you today, God calls you to humble yourself, says to give thanksgiving from a genuine heart. He calls you to return to Him and in love and do what you have once vowed this devotion that you have vowed to Him. And God calls you to trust Him and so call upon Him in the day of trouble. He will hear and He will deliver you. There is still opportunity for the empty ritualist. And there is still hope for the blatant uh, hypocrite. Still a day of hope. In verse 22, God calls the hypocrite to consider this. You who forget God. Before He comes in ultimate judgment, 
and destroys. Consider this, examine this, think upon this, evaluate yourself in light of what God is going to judge against and see whether this is true of you. And if it is true of you, he says, fall on your knees before him in repentance. What does returning to God in repentance look like for the hypocrite? Verse 23 describes it as offering praise to God and doing what is right. That's not that complicated, is it? Offer praise to God and do what is right. But the idea of offering praise to God, it's broad, but it's also a little more than simple. It means to recognize Him for who He is and express heartfelt adoration to Him. It is to honor Him and to worship Him. You cannot do that from a heart in rebellion against Him. You can only do that from a heart broken by the weight of sin, recognizing that only in Him is forgiveness and restoration. So God calls the hypocrite and the ritualist and every other type of sinner to turn to Him, to confess their sins, and to worship the Lord. We are not likely to do that on our own. So if you find yourself in either of those camps, call out to Him. Call out to Him. Ask Him to enable you to truly worship Him. God also calls the hypocrite to order his conduct aright, the New King James Version says, that is to start doing what is right. That's fairly direct, fairly straightforward. Not just out of an external force of habit, perhaps, but from a heart that desires to please God and ask him to give you a heart that desires to please him. (laughs) Having beheld the beauty of the Lord in forgiveness, we can now be motivated to live pleasing to him, to live right before him. And to the one who returns to God wholeheartedly, whether it's from ritualism or from hypocrisy or anything else, it says here, they will know, he says, I will show the salvation of God. God will rescue them. God will deliver them. This is speaking specifically to the Israelites as a physical reality in this world, but it's also speaking of, I believe, God's eternal work. God has still promised that all those who call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved, that all those who own Him as Lord and Savior in Jesus Christ, that all those who come to Him in repentance and receive forgiveness through faith will be saved. God is still the one who shows the salvation of God. He is still saving people from their sins. This is an Old Testament example of God's work completed in the New Testament in Jesus Christ. And so it remains a call to us, a call especially to those who do profess to follow Jesus Christ, a call to repent of empty ritualism, to repent of hypocrisy, and turn to the Lord with all of our heart, all of our soul, and all of our mind. And as we do that, according to verse 14, 15, and 23, out of that will flow thanksgiving, faithfulness to what has been vowed, communion with God in prayer, praise to God, and obedience. The well-known promise in Jeremiah, though it was specifically for the nation of Israel, after their 70 years in Babylonian captivity, there's aspects of it that still ring true today. God says to them, I know the thoughts I think toward you, says the Lord. Thoughts of peace and not of evil to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and pray to me and I will listen to you and you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. Now we recognize that 
the prosperity that is promised to the nation of Israel after a period of Babylonian exile is specific to them. Spiritual to us, that in Christ we have received and we will receive an eternal inheritance, absolutely. But the promise that is contained there in that passage in Jeremiah, if you seek me, you will find me. When you seek me or search for me, it says, with all your heart. I pray that you would seek the Lord, that we would seek the Lord, that we would be a congregation who is not content with empty ritualism, who is not content with just going through the motions, and that we would as well be a congregation who is certainly not content with a polished veneer covering a hypocritical heart, but that we would truly seek the Lord, knowing in full confidence as we seek Him, With all of our heart, He is not far from us. He is not distanced from us. He is not restraining Himself. He is desiring. He is desiring to meet and to work in and to empower His children far more than we could ever desire it. Seek the Lord with all your heart. I pray. I pray today you would examine yourself and ruthlessly root out empty ritualism and blatant hypocrisy. Repent of it. Seek God with all your heart. As you seek Him and find Him, He will enable you to live more in love with Him and more pleasing to Him according to His great power. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I confess that so often I have gone through the routine and the ritual and the as a child of yours by grace through faith, I have been so often stuck in a rut of performance for the sake of performance, or performance for the sake of meeting other people's expectations. And I acknowledge, I think, I'm sure I could say that for all of us. We've done it at some point, and so, Lord, we confess. We ask that you would cleanse us as you have promised to. And I confess as well that at times I I have done nothing but polish the veneer, making sure that it all looks good on the outside with a heart that is is not longing for Jesus Christ. And so we confess it. We ask for your forgiveness. And we thank you that you have promised to cleanse us from every sin. And I pray that you would give us a heart that longs for you. That as, as David has said in the Psalms, that as, as a deer pants after the water brook, so my, long, my soul longs after you, Lord. May we have that, that longing that we would be satisfied with nothing else we would certainly not be satisfied with rituals or with hypocrisy. May we see the beauty of who you are, the glory of your forgiveness and your redemptive plan towards us, and so be motivated with all of our heart to seek you and to serve you till Jesus comes to take us home. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.